Hey, everybody. This is Rayanne Thorne. Thanks for joining me today. I'm actually very excited about a brand new project I'm kicking off with my partner, Chris Fields. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining me on this. Thanks for having me do this. That's going to be great. So we're going to be kicking off this new podcast series called Do Respect. And I've asked Chris to join me on this project because it is something that I have witnessed over the years is important to him and it is important to me. And I feel like he is a very dear friend of mine that I can be open and honest and expect the same type of answers back from him. Do you agree with me, Chris? Do you think that's the way it's going to run? Yeah, you're one of my favorite people to talk to and always have been. So I think this is going to be a great conversation about different experiences and point of views. I think that someone will be able to get something from both sides of the conversation. So the title of this podcast series, Do Respect, comes from the phrase, with all due respect. And typically that phrase comes before somebody's about to say something that's disrespectful. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's dismissive, right? It usually comes before somebody saying, yeah, I heard what you said, but I don't agree with it and it's wrong. And so I want to change the perception of that. And I have decided that we need to have this open conversation, Chris. You're the perfect person to do this with because we have shared conversations in the past. You've been a guest on a podcast with me in the past, and we've talked about issues of racism and the different types of bias and discrimination that comes into play for folks that work in our space. We both work in the HR industry and HR space. I'm on the technology side, but I used to be a recruiter and an HR practitioner. And it was very important to me that my employees that I worked with, my fellow employees were happy where they worked. And I have relied on you in my help with friends who have needed assistance in building out a resume or interview ideas and tips. We've written together in the past and Here's an interesting thing about you and I, though. We have never actually met in real life. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Every year we say, this is the year, Chris. This is the year. And if I go back and look, I'm trying to think. It's We've probably known each other for eight years? Not quite that long. It's about six. Oh, okay. It just feels like much longer. So, Chris, I want to give you a moment to introduce yourself. And moving forward, we won't spend as much time talking about ourselves. And then we'll kick this off and dive into our first episode of Do Respect. I started out in the HR space blogging. Costofwork.com was my first blog. It helped me connect to people like you and others in HR space. And uh, a few years after that, I began writing resumes for friends and family members and decided to expand it into more people. And I saw that the process was working and people was getting jobs. So I decided to go all out with it. And I started the Resume Crusade in 2013. But before that, we had worked together on a few projects. You brought me along to write on some things, which was really great at the time, helped me out a whole lot. You've always thought about me when you have uh, new endeavors, which has meant the world to me. And so as I continued on, you kept that vibe. You've always looked out for me and and that's been great. So for me personally, though, I've developed and got a better understanding of what my strengths are in working with talent and jobs, careers, and understanding human resources from a tactical position and uh, being able to expand and do some other things with smaller companies. So that's how I've grown and developed over the past few years and to now be regarded in some circles as an expert or a person. Definitely. 
definitely an expert and have helped multiple friends of mine and people that I've referred to you to assist them in their job search capabilities and redefining what their LinkedIn profile should look like and how their resume should be worded and understanding the software that's out there today, assisting recruiters and hiring managers and HR departments to weed out or filter the applicants that come in. It's really important to make sure that you have the right structure to your information and content that you share about yourself, your background, your experiences. And you definitely have that. And it's helped so many people, friends of mine. So thank you for that. Tell us a little bit, Chris, about your personal history. So where do you live? Where'd you go to school? I just want to establish a difference between you and I. I'm born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to undergraduate school in Davenport, Iowa. After four years there, I returned to Memphis for about a year and a half. And then a friend of mine that I met in college suggested I move to Columbus. That's where she was living and suggested I would have a better lifestyle. Moved to Columbus, Ohio, and it was cold, but there were a lot of opportunities. And I did very well until the dot-com boom in the 2001, I believe, is when that started to happen. And I was faced with being back in the job market with a liberal arts degree. So I decided to go to Ohio State. And I really wasn't a Buckeye fan at the time, but it was the biggest school around. And I didn't want to have the same problem I had with my undergraduate degree, which was telling people about the school and the university and all that. So I knew Ohio State would solve that. And they had a really good program in human resources. So entered that program, three-year night program, and finished in 2005. And at that time, I decided I should probably move back home. The recession was in full swing at that time. So I thought I'd come back home and be a big fish in a small pond. And that turned out to be a tactical error. In my region, no one is checking for a Big Ten school. And they're looking at the University of Memphis, Ole Miss, Auburn, Alabama, UT. They're looking at those schools before they're looking at Ohio State. And I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. So it was a tough go for a while. Then that's how the other stuff I just mentioned happened. But what the benefit of my life, what I like about, I look at things that happen. And at the time, I didn't know why I was going through them. But now I look at them as all advantages because when I talk about different things that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, it's not just from a perspective of a person who grew up in one city. Memphis, if you don't know, is a majority African-American population. It's about 65 percent black. And uh, it's a very poor, statistically poor city. But there is wealth here. Don't make no mistake about it. There's a lot of great stuff going on. There's a lot of wealth. FedEx is here. Electrolux. I don't know if they just left or not, but International Paper, Cummings. There are some big companies here. Gibson has a factory here. We have a lot going on. We have our Memphis Grizzlies, who this year is tanking. But other than this year, we usually play off. So, you know, it's a good town. And so my perspective is not just one-sided. When I was in Ohio, it was the reverse. It was basically 90% white and 10%, well, not even 10% black. It was more like 5% black and there was other nationalities there too. So that was a big difference. I told a story about how recently a young lady, remember the story about how a young lady asked me what my hair felt like because she touched my hair. And that's when I had hair, first of all. She touched my hair and she said, oh my goodness, it's soft. And like she didn't expect that. She told me that she came from a town that had one black family and her family you know, didn't have the opportunity to interact with that family. That was very different for me because when I went to high school, we had three white people in our high school. And I actually, I'm friends with one of them today. We're still cool. I can't, I haven't been able to catch up with the other two. But anyway, so 
it's just a culture shock is what I'm getting at. And so then went to Ohio, it was a little more diversity in Ohio, but it was still a majority rural city. And I think the biggest thing about that city, though, that I thought was interesting was that it was a big college town. And so everything revolved around Ohio State. But the meeting people and being friends with people from those areas still to this day, I remember conversations we would have. I'm imagining they're going to be like conversations that you and I aren't going to have. Right. When we talk to respect. So I'm excited to be part of this different side of me. People know all that other stuff about the resumes and all that. Yeah. It's a good chance for them to get to know some other stuff about me. Well, you know? you've been a friend to me on many issues that we're going to discuss now. I have come to a place in my life where I realize that I have had privilege, but I didn't realize that my whole life. I had no idea. I'm a California girl, born and bred, born in Whittier, Los Angeles County. When I was 16 years old, just before my 17th birthday, my family moved to Northwest Indiana and I spent 10 years in that area. I went to Indiana University in South Bend and then married and had a couple of kids and moved back to California due to some health crisis issues that were happening for me. It was a severe asthmatic and asthma was plaguing my life and almost took my life twice within a year's time. So my husband at the time and I decided that as soon as we could get out of that area because of allergies and the cold and the weather conditions were impacting my health. We moved back to California and I moved back to the same town that I had left. I lived there up until eight years ago when I moved to Laguna Beach, California, which I can say profoundly with a lot of honesty is a very wealthy community, a very rich community. It's um, That doesn't mean there aren't folks here that struggle. I'm one of those folks. <laughs> I feel like I lucked into an opportunity to live here. And I'm so blessed to, as I look out over the ocean right now where I live and friends that I've made here. But I do recognize, I don't want to say ignorance, because ignorance indicates stupidity or also willful attempt to refuse to see what is happening or what is out there or what is different from me or the privilege that I have. There is no will in any of this on my end. And you know me, Chris, that I have been plagued by my whiteness. It's a horrible thing to say, and I don't want to go to that reverse side of the equation and bash white people. And we've talked a lot about this. And I yeah. I don't even like calling myself white because I have a heritage that is very diverse. Supposedly, there's American Indian in my background. There's uh, Italian, Swiss, Irish. I don't know how you depict what is white. I mean, we, we yeah. talked a little bit about this. I mean, what makes somebody white? And it's easy to say, I guess it's easy. I don't know. I don't know if it's different in the African-American community that you look at somebody and say, "You're well, you're not really black. I mean, does it depend on okay. where they've grown up? Does it depend on no. how much money they make? I mean, what is the... That's a, that's a great point. There is a such thing as same racism. There's this whole light-skinned blacks versus dark-skinned blacks. Wow. And that's been going on for years. There's even... EEO cases where same racism, just like they're saying sexism. So yeah, that happens a lot. This person isn't black enough. And we even talk about in the community how there are certain people that we would get rid of and put out if we could because of some of their views. And it's funny, Dave Chappelle had a skit, and I kind of hate using comedians because then people think they can be comedians, but he had a skit where it was about the race draft, where different racial groups would draft certain people in <laughs> out of their community and like the Asians traded Tiger Woods and, you know, we, we, the blacks traded, I forget who it was, we traded OJ or somebody. Yeah. So there are certain times where someone, you know, 
does something that the culture looks at and says, that's not really who we are. Like a Rachel Dolenzi, who says, you know, I identify as black, even though she's not. And we have accepted and look at me talking like I'm just like the president. But we've accepted uh, different cultures all the time. There are certain people who we just love, but the difference is they never try to say that they are black or they may understand and they even may benefit off of the culture and the style. We call it cultural appropriation. But they don't come out and say, well, I'm black or I'm just as black as this person. I think that's where people get into some danger. We were talking about cultural appropriation. And this is something that I wanted to ask you about anyway. And do you think that it is? So for me, if I am in a room with people who speak in British accents within five minutes, I will think I'm British and start talking with the British accent. I assume that it might be similar if I were sitting in a room with you and a bunch of your African-American friends, I might start talking like with a little bit of a lilt or a little bit of a, because it's kind of my, I adopt to the nature around me. Like when I first moved to the beach, I still dressed in like these black tights and high boots and black skirts. And I still had this city of thing happening. And, but within a few months, I was in flip-flops and long skirts sitting in the sun and a wine time happened at three o'clock instead of five o'clock. So I kind of appropriate the culture yeah. that's around me and it's not on purpose. It's just kind of a natural thing that I do for my own comfort. So when people do this, like Rachel, she fully adopted the black culture. I mean, fully into her life. And I believe her child, her children are half African-American. Yeah. Yeah. She do have mixed children. She did kind of work in that space. She worked in that but let me, let me, for the listeners, let me explain if they don't know. This is a lady who told everyone, because she's fair-skinned, so she's what we would call a light-skinned black, but she's not black. So she looked, she had fair skin, and I guess she would get some tans or what have you. So she did her hair in ethnic or cultural styles that are associated with black women. The Afro, Afro puffs, braids, micro braids, things of that nature. And she took a job with the local chapter of her NAACP and moved up quite a bit. And all the while she had been telling people that she was black, that she was black, not that she grew up with black people. She didn't say that. She said she was black on her application. She's black. So when the internet started to figure out that something wasn't right and going back to the past pictures and history and parents are lily white, nice people. And they said, they just don't understand why she's doing this this way. And why she's like, she's basically kicked them to the curb. Like, you know, she even tried to, at one point, say that her father was not her real father and that this black guy was her father, who was a very close personal mentor of hers. So that's the difference there. You know, it's a difference when you're maybe infatuated and or, you know, you get around some people that you may lose yourself for a moment versus totally changing your identity and saying, okay, well, I identify as black, so I can call myself black. Because it worked for her for a while. She moved up and people liked her for whatever reason. But it normally doesn't work that way when you... You change. Well, I mean, let's look at the bottom line of this. She's not black, right? She no. lived and worked in a black culture, if you will. Right. She was good at her job. People liked her. And then the downfall came. Found out truth. Widely reported. And did the downfall come because she lied or did yeah. the downfall come because she was white? No, the downfall because she lied about who she was. She was being fake. Yeah. No one likes anybody. That's fake. Black people or white people or 
Asian people or whomever. No one likes somebody who is fake. So the problem was that she was fake. So she that would have been all right then if she had said, if she'd been honest and said, hey, I'm white, but my children are mixed race. Absolutely. Because I, to, I still want to be a part of this community. I want absolutely. To and just so people know, the NAACP has hired many white people. That was my next question because I want they to- have done that. You don't have to be black to be part of that organization. And they have hired people to have other high ranking positions within that organization. So it was totally an unnecessary lie that she was carrying on. Sometimes we tell ourselves lies so much that we believe them. And, you know, the believe. way she dressed, the way she carried herself, the way she talked, I think she fully believed. Yeah, well, I don't. There may have been some mental issues going on there because there's one thing when you tell yourself a lie and then it crumbles and you say, you know what? I've been lying. This is not the truth. And it's another thing when you try to hold fast to that lie because she still tries to hold fast to that. And she will still tell you today that she identifies as black. So to me, there's some mental stuff going on there. There's but obviously I, something more than you and I can diagnose. <laughs> right. I want to get back to you for a second. So if we're ever together and there's a group of black people, I want you to try your best not to try to sound, quote unquote, black or fitted. Just be yourself. Because people will sniff that out in a second. They're like, no, you will, but it's how how does she go from talking like California lady? So just always be yourself. And and that goes for everybody. To talk California, I'm going to call you out if you start talking California. And if I hear rude or tubular come out of you, or you said that, I was thinking that too. In front of your highway, I'm going to. I was thinking that too. Like, what if I met you and I started like, oh my God, can you, you know, like, Chris, what is wrong with you? And that's how you got to look at it. Try not to look at some of these things as color issues and just ask yourself, well, if you were on the other end of this, how would you feel? And I think that's what we're losing today is the empathy. Yeah, for sure. I just saw a thing about how this teacher in New Jersey wanted to have the black students understand what slavery felt like. So she had them lie on the floor as she stepped on their backs. Oh, my God. And so now a couple things with that. First, if I'm a parent, somebody is getting hurt. Somebody is getting yeah. hurt. Yeah, for sure. You can tweet me if you want to at Real May Crusade. But I'm telling you, if that's my kid <laughs> and they come home and say, hey, dad, today the teacher stepped on my back because she wanted us to learn understand what slavery felt like. No. That, somebody's getting hurt. Now, but let me flip this. If I'm a white guy and my child comes home and says the teacher wanted the white kids to understand what slavery felt like. So they made us lie on the floor and stepped on our backs. Guess what? Somebody's getting hurt. Nobody's child should have to worry about being stepped on. Black, white, red, Hispanic. You shouldn't have to worry about somebody trying to step on you to make you feel a certain way. So a lot of times when you see these things and you think, oh, this person is just race baiting or trying to get some kind of conversation going, ask yourself, if you were on that situation, how would you feel about it? And that's what I try to talk about and share because some of this stuff is so ridiculous. Do you really not see? This is the conversation that I've had with multiple friends and family members about understanding, truly trying to understand and grasp what privilege is. It's something that I struggle with because I know, I know what I haven't had to fear. For me, that is the ultimate description of what this is, what white privilege is. It is not what how hard I've had to work. The argument comes over, I worked hard too. Well, yeah, so what? I worked from the time I was 12. I took in ironing when I was 12 years old. That's how I learned the value of a quarter. Trust me, I've worked hard. But what I haven't had to do is fear 
when I've been in a situation. I've never had to fear that law enforcement would do anything other than exactly what they're supposed to do. I've never had to fear in any situation. Even when I've been walking on the streets of Chicago by myself, I have not had fear. Well, I have some friends that can't say that because they've been mugged and they've had problems, knife and a gun held Mm -hmm. on them. But I've had that. Here's the thing, Chris. I've had that in my own home. Mm -hmm. Somebody has held a gun on me in my own home. Somebody who claimed to love me. Right. So Mm -hmm. maybe I come at it differently. Maybe because I recognize the things that I haven't had to deal with or the things that I haven't had to worry about. Or when I hear stories, my black friends, and they tell stories of how they prepare their children before they go out. I'm just horrified by that because I've never had to even think twice about that with my kids. I worry about them driving, but I don't worry about anything else. Right. Right. Well, I was going to say, and that's one of the things that you and some of my other friends who When I talk about things, it's always a natural tendency to worry about how some white people will perceive it. Right. But I've learned over the years that the ones that understand, they don't get offended because that's not their care. They wouldn't do such a thing. And they're surprised when they hear about some of these things. Right. A few years ago, Trayvon Martin was murdered. There was a lot of back and forth over, well, he shouldn't have been smoking weed or he shouldn't have got into a fight with the neighborhood watch guy. He should have just did this or he should have just did that. And But then another murder happened. I forget which one was next, but I think Mike Brown was next. And there was a lot of, well, he shouldn't have gotten into confrontation with the police officer and, and this and that. It was all this you know, middle ground. But then Tamara Rice happened. The 12-year-old, he was 12-year-old at the time in Cincinnati, and the police pulled up on him in the park and right. just shot him. Didn't give him a chance to even react. And then Eric Garner in New York, who was choked out on the city streets. I literally noticed with those two that a lot of people's idea, it shifted. They changed from being, well, why didn't they do it to, wow, okay, that's crazy. And then with the guy in Minnesota, Fidelia Castilla, in Minnesota, he was in the car with his fiance and his daughter, and they shot him in the car with his daughter and his fiance. And he was a janitor at a school and everybody loved him. He was only like in his thirties. I think that was another one that outraged a lot of people like, okay, this is just ridiculous. I bring up those horrific incidents because that's when I noticed a shift from people going to, well, maybe looking at the victim to, okay, yeah, there's something wrong with this system. And it's funny because the things that you talk about, you've never considered, they were so drilled into me growing up that I didn't realize what was happening until I reflected on it. Like I vividly remember when I got my license and had a car, I would go visit my grandmother and I would go visit my grandfather. They were separated. They were divorced at this time. But And I would go visit my great aunt. And every time I would leave one of their houses, they would say the same thing. Okay, son, you careful out there. And I know that sounds to a lot of people general. But what they were saying to me was like, if you get pulled over, just do exactly what they say. Don't give them any trouble. <sighs> and so it really didn't dawn on me until later that they were all telling me. Because when I would go leave my mom's house. She wouldn't say that or other friends have it. But my grandparents and the greats in my family, every time I would get in that car, they would say, now, look, you be careful out there. And I knew what they were meaning. Like, don't get any trouble. Don't, you know, if you get put over by the cops, make sure your hands, we were always told, keep your hands on the steering wheel. When they come to the window, if it's rolled down, you address them. If it's rolled up, you let them see very carefully that you are just reaching for the, either the automatic 
window thing or you're reaching for the roller to roll it down because yeah back in the day we had the rollers yeah i um, remember those that's when we got exercise <laughs> exactly you got a lot of that's right so yeah those things i look at them now and i'm like yeah they were really teaching us and a lot of people don't ever consider having to think about those things even the same thing with jobs i remember when having an earring was a death sentence oh yes or or a yeah. tattoo or a visible or, tattoo. Or, or facial hair. I don't know if you oh, remember wow. that. Oh, yeah. For a young man growing up, it was always, if you got a job interview, you shave your little chin whiskers, whatever's going on, you shave it all off. Like Even if you were trying to be a little man and grow your first mustache, if you had a job interview, you shave that joker that's, off. That's right. I am fascinated by this topic, and I hope that there's going to be so much for us to talk about. I, I don't want this to, each episode to be so long that people can't listen to it on their commute or quickly within a half an hour, 45 minutes. So I don't want to go too much further. But one thing I wanted to ask you about or talk to you about was something that happened years ago between you and I on Facebook. And it actually wasn't between you and I. I felt like you and I were on the same side because of our industry knowledge and because of how we knew each other. Even early in our relationship, I always felt that there was this mutual respect that was obviously due respect for each other. I treasured our differences and what I could learn from you. And I don't want to get emotional because I have to be stoic right now, but I really have always valued our friendship, our relationship, our ability to talk to each other about things that other people are uncomfortable talking, you know, each other about. I think one time I asked you, is it better for me to say black people or African-American people, because I don't know. I don't know what is acceptable. I don't know what is right. I've asked both you and Tora and Ellis that question. And both of you came back with the same response. Know your audience. Just <laughs> kind of know what they expect and ask them like you're doing. I think it's better to be inquisitive than to act like you know everything. Just to go back to this one incident before yeah. we close out today, I had was writing a great deal about my experiences as a recruiter, the different types of candidates or applicants that would come in. When we say candidates in HR or in the recruiting space, it it is not reference to somebody who's running for office. It's somebody who is eligible for a particular opening or role or job with an organization. Mm-hmm. And candidates have been identified as people who express interest or people who have interest expressed in them. So if they are a qualified applicant for a job, they are considered a candidate. So I had this candidate that I had spoken with via phone and had reviewed his resume and had sent him all kinds of information about it. He had phoned interviews with the, at the time I was hiring for a big healthcare district in the Central Valley of California. And they had a huge campus. They had six or seven buildings and three or four miles that specific roles would require the individuals to walk and to go from campus to campus. And this particular job was for a vice president or a director of nutrition for a healthcare district. And this individual was from your neck of the woods. I think he was from Tennessee or Mm. I'll have to go back deep into the walls because this was Mm -hmm. many years ago, 15 years ago. And he was invited on site based on his experience the previous roles he had held, the way his resume looked, and how he conversed over the phone. This was pre-Skype for really exclusive roles. We would do video conferencing at the FedEx. We would reserve a room at FedEx and go in. So this was very early before all of this really great technology that we have now. 
that allows us to have face-to-face conversations over the internet. So I hadn't seen him. I knew that he was African-American and we had had multiple conversations about that and helping him understand that this is a multicultural area in the state, but most of that diversity is with Hispanic people or Mexican-Americans because of the type of area that it is. It's a big farming community. And so there were a lot of Mexican-Americans and immigrants in that area. So he was aware of the, the different diversity versus what he was used to. So he was flown in. I received to his first interview and they proceeded to walk the campus. And the VP that I was working with on this hire was not there at the time. I was working as an executive recruiter. So I was about 150 miles south of where this was taking place excused herself and made a call to me and said to me, did you ever meet uh, this applicant? And I said, no, I never met him. You knew what I knew. And she said, so you never saw a picture of him? And I said, no. And she said, he is extremely overweight and cannot do this job. And I said, oh, can you tell me why? And she said, because it requires him to walk four to five miles a day. He needs to be able to walk the campus and go from hospital facility to hospital facility. And he's in charge of multiple nutrition programs and has lots of direct reports that he has to work with. And he is not able to even walk from one building to another without stopping and resting. And I said, okay, what would you like me to do? And she said, I want you to tell him he has to go home and that he's not eligible for the job. And I said, okay. I mean, this is the hard part about being a recruiter is always the worst part is telling a candidate that they are not getting the job. And in particular, in this situation, the interview was interrupted and he was dismissed immediately, right? And so I learned a hard lesson of being a little bit more diligent, really understanding the requirements for the roles that I was hiring for, and then to really dive into those requirements and make sure that the candidates I send on site are eligible to and can fill those particular tasks that are necessary to be able to do those tasks and the requirements that are necessary. I wrote a blog post about this experience and I posted it on Facebook and Chris, you were the first one. So he was a very heavy man. He was overweight. And I posted this with just trying to share my experience. Hey, be diligent when you, it wasn't anything other than as a recruiter, be diligent about your job. Make sure that you are aligned, right? And you wrote one comment, only one word. That's where I wanted, I wanted. So Rayanne says, and I do believe her, but I'm just playing because she's my (laughs) friend right now. So I don't want anybody to act like I'm calling her a liar. I believe what she says. Rianne says that I left a comment and it was only one word. One word. And it was fatism. F-A-T-I-S-M. Now, for those of you who don't know me, number one, that does sound like something I would do. But number two, (laughs) I'm an overweight male myself who has mobility issues and I've been dealing with it for a while. So I'm not surprised that I wrote it, but I'm surprised that I didn't elaborate and say something like, wow, that's something I deal with too. And I really believe that you know your situation, and he probably knew he wasn't the best candidate for that either. But I'm surprised that I didn't elaborate. But I wrote that one comment, fatism, and then tell them what happened. Because oh, I, but you tell them what happened. On it the was other. it was interesting at the time. I was my relationship with my oldest daughter was not the best, and anybody who has raised children and had them move out, get married, and knows that you go through phases where there's struggles in those relationships. And my daughter and her husband really basically attacked me online and said, yes, it is fatism. How dare you write this? Maybe what if something happens where somebody doesn't want to hire somebody with a boob job? And anybody who knows me knows that I've had breast enhancement (laughs) and I'm not shy about it. (laughs) 
I want to talk more about that. Yeah, uh, we will. We'll talk about that in hashtag, future episodes because I think gotta this be is careful. Hashtag me too. I don't want to do any of that, but we have to talk about that in the next episode. Absolutely. Because I think there is a perception about women who do that as well. Right. So what my daughter and her husband didn't know is that I had already written in depth about getting a boob job and what it was like. And so I right underneath, I said, yeah, I've thought about that. And I wrote that, put the post up about having gotten a boob job and right underneath that same post. And it was an attempt to hurt me. And I understood that, but also I understood the reasoning behind it. There were other folks who said, who kind of scolded you for the article too, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But not, I did not feel scolded by you, Chris. I did not. This is the interesting thing about it. When you wrote that, I nodded my head. I said, yeah, absolutely fatism. This man could have done the job. I mean, why couldn't he have done the I think job? he could have. I don't he think could he have could done have. the job. So there would have been things that would have had to change. He would have had to either get fit or he would have needed cart or scooter type thing, or he couldn't have done the job the way the requirements stood. But if you are a diverse organization that's looking to make changes, and this was, like I said, 15 years ago, there are things that could have been done to allow him to be able to do this job. Certainly there were, but it was at the time, this organization needed somebody that could run from campus to campus, period. That's it. There were no exceptions. They just couldn't see other candidates than somebody who could fulfill that role in the way that it had always been fulfilled. Today, I think we see these things differently, right? There were there were a couple of issues with that. The role was overnutrition. He was obviously overweight and unfit. So how do you look up to somebody who, if somebody were a direct report, how do they look to that person and say, I can't report to you because you're not fit? That was part now, of the issue. Now, I want to say something to that because that's a very good point. I actually know people who have fired their personal trainers because personal trainers were out of shape. That's one of those things where you can tell people what to do, but they're going to look at you as an example. So if you're Absolutely. out of shape, they're going to not buy all the way in in most situations. Now, you think about coaches and maybe a boxing manager. That's a whole different thing. But when you're talking about having a program that centers around health and wellness. Fitness and, and well-being, yes. You have to be living that life a little bit. Now, I also want to say this, too. There are some people that if you maybe look at them, you wouldn't know that they were physically fit. But last year or two years ago, there was a 400-pound man who finished either the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon. Yeah, that's amazing. Pounds. That's amazing. I see people who avid runners who may have a little extra weight. So I know there's some people out there who are going to hear what we just talked about and think that we're judging and we're really not. But as a recruiter and a talent manager, Rianne did her job. She sent the candidate over. Right. And he, when walking to campus, you know, that person felt like, you know, he's not gonna be able to do this job. And maybe they didn't have time to say, look, we want to hire you, but we know you're going to need some time to ramp up fitness. To right. Right. To and he could have even looked at it as an opportunity to help him. We don't know who else applied. Those other people could have been ready day one. So you have to always think about that too. This guy may have been a good feel good hire if you have the time to get him to where you need him to be. Or is there somebody who is ready day one right now that can go and get the ball rolling? So I don't want anybody to judge you on that. And and really, you didn't do anything. The lady told you, hey, this is not going to work out. So Yeah, it was my responsibility. That's your job as a recruiter. You bring people in and you tell people, sorry, you didn't get the job. I mean, the, yeah. the bottom line is, and I've said this all along, but in the purest understanding of what the word discrimination means, it means stating that this isn't the right person for the right thing for the right place. I mean, 
And it is a, unfortunately, in the purest definition of the word, it is a recruiter's responsibility to be discriminating, meaning I have to find the right person. I need to be discriminating in the type of people I bring to the table, the type of people that I bring on site to meet the executives that are going to make this hire. I need to make sure that those individuals, and I'm not talking about racism or bias. I'm talking about the purest form of what discrimination means. Somebody, Mm -hmm. one person is going to be happy out of the many, many, many that won't be happy because they didn't get the job and they are going to feel discriminated against one way or another. And the truth is they were. They were chosen. They were not chosen for a specific reason. Somebody else was chosen because they had it all or fit closest to the the right exact fit for that job. So Mm -hmm. it's easy to look at a recruiter's job or at anybody's anybody in the world and say they discriminated or they he wasn't selected because you hate fat people or it's easy to look from the outside and this was this came from the statements from my daughter and her husband came from individuals who don't work in HR who don't work in hiring and don't have an understanding of what that meant but for you given your place and given our relationship i was not upset by your comment as a matter of fact it stayed with me forever because it was a learning and teaching moment for me. I want to publicly apologize <laughs> because I really wish I had elaborated. I can't believe I just said that and just dropped that little bomb and walked away. Yeah, so I, I keep searching. I, I had elaborated on it a little more than just saying fatism because any isms nowadays are not good. You don't want to really. Well, be, but they are true and real. I they, mean, you know, some we of live them with can be true. Sexism, ageism, racism. I mean, there are so many and fatism. I mean, it's definitely one of the isms out there that is predominant and recognizable. And that's what we're going to talk about here on due respect. So thanks for letting me tell that story, Chris, and kind of put you on the spot, but also putting me on the spot and opening topics for the future, because this is what due respect is about. It is about recognizing mishaps, mistakes, misunderstandings, and trying to rectify them or understand them or talk about it and say, look, this is what we can do better. One thing that I wanted to address about something that you said earlier that reminded me this, we all know what the golden rule is. Do unto others as you would have others do to you. Well, years ago, my good friend, Carrie Corbin said to me, well, I try to live the platinum rule. And I had never heard that. And I said, well, what is the platinum rule? And she said, Well, it's the golden rule, but you take it one step further. It's a little bit more precious. It's a little bit more of a precious metal than gold in the fact that you try to treat people the way they want to be treated, not the way you wanted to be treated because you're different people. So you have to look beyond yourself. One of the hashtags I've used a lot in the last couple of years is look beyond. It look beyond yourself and see maybe they don't want to be treated like you're okay with being treated. Maybe they want to be treated the way they want to be treated, and it's not the same. And if you come from different places, different lifestyles, different backgrounds, different communities, different races, that is going to be different. And that, I think, is the answer for us. We need to really look beyond and try to determine how does this person want to be treated? How do they need to be treated? It may not be the same as what I would think. That is definitely another topic because. I've been having these conversations with different people about you being the version of yourself and other people not accepting that version of you. I think a lot of times people put us in boxes and say, okay, that's Rayanne. She only talks about this and this and this. And then the moment Rayanne talks about or does something that we don't associate her with, oh, well, something's wrong with her. She's changed. That's absolutely true. 
yeah, yeah. And it's not that at all. It's just that there's a different version of you and you're defining what that version of you is. Well, and there's also this freedom. You know, I had this conversation. I mean, you've opened a whole new topic that we will address in the future. I mean, this is going to be a great opportunity for us, Chris, to talk because my brother mentioned something to me recently and said, well, you have this new attitude, this new approach. You're different now. And I said, I'm actually not different. I'm just feel more free to talk this way, right? I'm, <laughs> this is how I've always felt. I just am in a different place in life where I don't care what you think. I'm going to say what I think. And social media has allowed for that. And also the Me Too movement has allowed for it. it the, the strength that comes from Black Lives Matter, all of these different things that help us to be a little bit more vocal and honest about what's happening in our lives. I think it's so valuable for us to have conversations like this and allow us to learn from each other and not just scream at each other from opposite sides of the street or behind a sign. It's very easy to hold up a sign and say something that you know is going to inflame, but to really have a conversation and say, I need help understanding. And that's what due respect is about. Yep. Sounds good. I look forward to more. All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure as always, Chris. So I look forward to our next episode. Um, Any last final thoughts you'd like to share? No, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to how this series goes and I hope people get a good understanding of who we are as people, not just you and I, but just as a whole. So maybe somebody can ask themselves, how is it that a, a woman from California and a white woman <laughs> from California and a black man from Memphis are good friends and they've never even met? Because we'll talk about some of the things that I liked about you in our next Absolutely. conversation. Absolutely. Sounds great. Thanks, Chris. I look forward mm-hmm. to our next chat about due respect. 